You know, I was talking with Jairus about this because we're the ones that have been preaching these Psalm 119 sermons. And these, because it's poetry, it can be hard to categorize. This is not like Paul's letters. Um, this is poetry. And it's hard to find exactly the theme. What we know thematically, we know what's happening, is he's written this whole entire poem about his love for God and his love primarily for God's Word. That's the theme that holds this whole thing together. But when you're looking at each stanza, you're looking for themes as well. And so when you study your Bible, you're looking for words that are repeated. If you've been in the Jonah Bible study, and there's been like 55 men, I think, that have been coming for the last few weeks, part of the Bible study, which is amazing. Thank you guys for doing that, and thank you, Tom, for leading. But one of the things he's been teaching us is when you look at a section of Scripture and you look for words that are repeated, the writer's emphasizing something. And if you looked closely, as we get to work studying this psalm, you'll see something repeated. Verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. So he, talks, he uses this word afflicted. Then he describes something very vivid. The insolence smear me with lies. I asked my wife uh, the other day if she felt like she had ever been smeared with lies. And we both concluded that I maybe had experienced it more than her. <laughs> But even I couldn't think of an example where someone just fabricated a complete lie about me and then smeared me with it. It happens, though. And when it does, I'll tell you, it's a bad day when you get smeared with lies. And then he says in verse 71 something that really grabs our attention. He says, it is good for me that I was, what's that word again, guys? Afflicted. He says, it's good for me that I was afflicted. We're going to explore that statement for a while, for a minute. Um, and we're going to do that in a few minutes. But I can honestly say this. It is hard for me to ever say it is good when I go through trouble. So the psalmist, the theme here that I think is emerging, is he's making a connection between going through trouble and his relationship with the Word of God, which is ultimately his relationship with the author of the Word of God, his relationship with the Lord. He's asking a question, I think, to all of us. What is your, the relationship you have between trouble and trial and the Word of the Lord? Where do we go for help when we're struggling? How does the Word of God strengthen a world-weary soul? Here's my organizing question. How does the Word of God transform our troubles and trials. How does the Word of God transform our troubles and our trials? And we're going to look at the psalmist who explains to us three ways that that happens. You ready? Let's get to work. How does the Word of God transform our troubles and trials? Number one, it realigns our perspective. It realigns our perspective. Suffering provides you with a perspective. 
trials and troubles can cause us all to question God. When you go through something significant, when you go through a significant trial, you, there's, there's doubts that form in our lives and form in our hearts, form in our minds that get at, man, the preacher every Sunday keeps talking about the goodness of God. I keep reading about the grace of God. But it just doesn't feel like this right now. My life does not feel good right now. Where are you, God? I feel vulnerable. I feel alone. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you, even when you have loved ones, people that love you, around you, you feel incredibly alone. Like no one understands. Where you feel abandoned. And then someone says, well, Jesus said he would never leave you or forsake you. And you say, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way. Suffering does something to us mentally, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And what it does often is it, is it paints a perspective. And, and the only way through suffering for the Christian is to remember, just like Jairus taught last week, that there is another perspective than the one that we have right in front of us. Because the Word of God realigns, desires to realign our perspective in trial because in trial it is easy to forget. He says in verse 65, before describing his affliction, he says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. So prior to beginning to describe the affliction that he's experiencing, people smearing lies about him and, a, and an affliction that he's, he's experienced, before he begins to describe that, he reminds himself that you have dealt well with me. Even though I'm, I'm getting ready to tell people that I'm going through affliction, before I get there, I'm going to remind myself and every reader that the Lord has been good to me. It's, he, what he's doing is he's realigning his perspective with ultimate truth. Even though it may not feel like this right now, ultimately he knows that the Lord is good and that God is going to vindicate him in the end. God is going to rescue him in the end. So he's, 
reminding himself. He's realigning his perspective. Well, how does the Word of God transform our trials? It provides perspective realignment. It brings us under the sway of God's Spirit instead of under the sway of our suffering and our trials. This is important for us to see. He says, you have dealt well with your servant. You have done good. You have dealt graciously. Is it possible to say that in the midst of trial that God has been good to you? Dealt. That makes me think of poker. I, and I haven't played a lot of poker. I got into it like in sixth grade for about a week. And, and it, poker's not fun unless you got some skin in the game. That's what I've decided. That's why so many people play poker. They do it for money. We put Skittles on the line. And it made it fun. I was trying to accumulate the most Skittles that I could accumulate. But even that, it only lasted for like a, a week. But when I think of dealing graciously, God has, you have dealt well with your servant. I think of God dealing. He's dealing to you. And the psalmist is saying he's dealt well with you. So I looked up in poker what the best hand is in poker. Does anybody know? This will reveal how you spent your Saturday night. What's the, what's the best? I looked it up. A royal flush, which is like, if I'm, if I'm right, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, it's like starting at like a 10, jack, queen, king, ace, all the same suit. The chances of you getting that is 1 in 650,000. He deals the cards. you got one in 650,000 that you're going to end up with a royal flush. In Christ, all of my many sins have been forgiven. And though I deserve judgment, For my sins, Jesus paid it all. And the place called hell reserved for those that die apart from Christ in their sins, experiencing the judgment that they deserve, I will never even get a glimpse of the place because God has dealt graciously with me. Royal flush every time. That realigns your perspective. It's to remember who you are. We've got to remember who we are in the middle of our trial, in the middle of our troubles, in the middle of our in the middle of difficult circumstances, in the midst of our suffering, we've got to remember who we really are. Listen to this. 
Tom Osborne was the head coach of the University of Nebraska football team. He announced his retirement, and the person writing this says, as a University of Tennessee fan, I was glad to see this noble adversary leave. The night before, his Nebraska Cornhuskers had defeated the Tennessee Volunteers 42-17 in the Orange Bowl. In speaking about his age and stepping down, he told a story about visiting a friend at a retirement center in Nebraska. He had gotten lost while looking for his friend's room. So he saw a lady that obviously lived there, and he asked for directions to find his friend. She thought for a moment, and then she said this. I don't know what to tell you, but if you go back there to that desk, they'll not only tell you where you live, but they'll tell you who you are. Now, there's something very sad in that illustration. (laughs) But we're using it illustratively, and I'm not demeaning anyone. The point is, there are times in your life, in sorrow, where you need someone to tell you who you are. You need the Bible to remind you of who you are, and that will realign your perspective. Because what you're enduring has an end date. It has an expiration date on it. But the truth of who you are in Christ is eternal. And that is intended to realign your perspective. J.I. Pachter says, in answer to the question, what is a Christian? He says the question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. What he's saying is, if you're in Christ, you've been adopted into the family of God, and that realigns your perspective on every trouble or trial you're experiencing. So I went through and I made a list. I was going to read them all to you, but I'm not. 25, to be a child of God means, and I wrote down 25 things. I'm just going to read you some of them. Because this is what you need to remind yourself of when you're going through a trial, when you're going through trouble. Some of you are going through it right now. You need to be reminded of this. I'm a, a recipient of the supreme gift of God's love. That's 1 John 3. The Spirit of God's Son has been sent into my heart so that God is present with me all the time. Somebody say amen. You're not amening enough. The Spirit of God's Son has been sent into my heart so that God is present with me all the time, even though in this suffering it feels like He's not. He is present with me all the time. That realigns my perspective. I've entered into a rich relationship and fellowship with the Son of God that he has always enjoyed with the Father, and he intends my life to be a reflection of Christ's fellowship with the Father. I am protected from the evil one. Satan can't touch me or harm me. That's 1 John 5. I receive God's protection so that I do not continue in habitual sin, but by his grace I pursue godliness and avoid sin. One day I will share in the glory and honor which Christ enjoys. John 17. I am no longer a child of wrath or a slave to sin, but now I am a child of of God. That's Ephesians 2. I am considered not just a disciple, but a brother of Christ. 
That's Hebrews 2. God is eager and determined to bless me with good things. That's Matthew 7. I can be free from anxiety and worry because my heavenly Father has promised to provide for me. That's Matthew 6. I was a recipient of God's adopting love even before the foundations of the world and a participant in His eternal plan of salvation. That's the book of Ephesians. You came in with this perspective. And the Word of God is giving you this perspective. He wants to realign you because you get out of whack. And tomorrow you'll wake up out of whack. Where will you go? You go to the Word of God. And it will realign you. Who's with me? God has never fallen short in all of His dealings with humans. I'm convinced of this as well. One more thought on this point. If we were, as the one Puritan said, more prompt and hardy to acknowledge the Lord's blessings to us, we would see His blessings more regularly. See, a lot of us have trained ourselves to only be complainers. You only see enough that you can complain to somebody about it. Don't you hate that? I go to the gym, I go to places, I go sit in a waiting room at the office, and, and, and I hope I'm not like this. But the people that sit next to me, all they can do is complain about everything. Too often we're like that because we've trained ourselves to complain about every stinking thing. I was getting ready to go on a tirade. But I'm turning it inward. I can be vulnerable to this as well. But we need to train ourselves, church, brothers and sisters, friends. We need to train ourselves to see God's goodness in our everyday lives. And if we do that, we'll see more of His goodness. But if you train yourself to only ever see what's wrong in life, then all you become is, is, is your prayers are just filled with a lack of perspective on who you are if you pray at all. God wants to realign our perspective and train us to be thankful. Train us to see His goodness. All right, so we're talking about how does the Word of God transform our troubles and trials? It realigns our perspective. Number two, it adjusts our attitudes. It adjusts our attitudes. It provides attitude adjustment. Look at what he says. Teach me good judgment. Let me ask you this question. One of the first things to go in the midst of trial, disappointment, or troubling conflict is good judgment. One of the first things to go is knowledge of God and His goodness and belief, as the psalmist prays, in His commandments. We act in moments of trial. We act out of our emotions. We vent, we vent sinfully. We do what comes naturally, often sinfully. What happens when we come into trial? We often sink down into self-pity. 
We wallow in withdrawal. We crave comfort in forbidden things to escape from, from the trouble we're experiencing. We put our immediate future in the hands of a false god. We vent our vitriolic anger. We allow our emotions to explode. God wants to use His Word at moments like that to adjust our attitude so that we don't act the way we would sinfully, but we would act in a manner that pleases Christ. Give me good judgment. Give me goodness of judgment. Give me good discretion. Give me true understanding. Give me excellent reason. Give me goodness of taste. An attitude adjustment. It reminded me of a song that my dad used to like in the 80s. We used to go fishing together, and my dad sometimes would play. He loved the blues, but sometimes he would play country music, and this song is by Hank Williams Jr., who some of you remember, before Carrie Underwood, I don't even know if she still does, but Monday Night Football, you ready for some football? That was Hank Williams Jr., in case you're wondering. He wrote this song called Attitude Adjustment. I, I think it's hilarious. I think it's more of a guy thing, so ladies, just be bear with us. My wife doesn't laugh at all when I read this. I think it's hilarious. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because it gets a little off color, but, but here's the first stanza of his poem called Attitude Adjustment. He says, now I met an old friend in the bar the other night, and he got a little drunk, and he wanted to fight. And he jumped up and challenged every man in the room. And just about the time he got the words out, an old boy jumped up and closed his mouth and used his head for a mop and his butt for a broom. It was an attitude adjustment. I guess it was his first time. An attitude adjustment, now he understands just fine. He got bent out of shape, and he opened his mouth, and just one appointment straightened him right out. It was an attitude adjustment. Oh, it'll work every time. Hank Williams, Jr., and Psalm 119, what in the world do they have in common? I'll tell you what they have in common. Sometimes God wants to give you an attitude adjustment. Maybe this is more for the men's Bible study. Do you, do you believe that? That God sometimes wants to adjust your attitude, wants to adjust your perspective. He wants to do that. I was reading some, some the, the people that are, that are in my Bible memory squad, some of them have been memorizing Psalm 32. And I've been listening to it, and I couldn't help but see this. Before I, before I go there, this is the, I love this kind of stuff when the Word fits together. But another word for good judgment is that God would teach us docility. Docility. I don't even know what that means. Docile. Readily trained, easily taught, 
Some of us are not docile. And what God wants to do is to adjust your attitude and to make you more docile. And you might not like this. You don't like a view of God as one who would adjust attitudes, but I tell you that he does. Psalm 32, look at this. And he says this, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like, don't be like. Y'all ready for this? A horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it won't stay near you. Docility. God wants to adjust our attitudes so that we would not be like a mule or a horse. But some of you, most of you, have no experience with mules and no experience with horses. So you have absolutely no idea what God is talking about. I'm going to get in trouble. Don't be a dumbass, is what he's saying. He wants to adjust your attitude so that you're more in line with the Christ that has saved you than you are when you are untrained, unwilling to repent, un, not easily taught, not acting with good discretion, not loving understanding, not excellent in reason. Why? Because you're in a trial and you've lost your way. And the Word of God wants to adjust your attitude. One Puritan writer said this, ignorance is not sanctifying. I love that. Think on that. Ignorance is not sanctifying. God wants to adjust our attitude, to lift us out of self-pitying thoughts, to not allow us to wallow in our withdrawal, to crave comfort in forbidden things, to vent our vitriolic anger, to allow our emotions to explode. He wants to train us that our attitudes would be adjusted and be more in line with the Christ who has saved us. Amen? The Word of God desires to transform our troubles and trials by realigning our perspective by adjusting our attitudes, and finally, by repurposing our pain. God wants to repurpose our pain. He uses this language over and over. He says humbled, or he says the word afflicted, which is to mean humbled, troubled, suffering, and he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Then he describes how the insolent are smearing him with lies. And then he says, what I already mentioned in verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted. God uses trouble in our lives that he might turn us back to him. And, and, the tr and the way he turns us back to him is with his word. 
The Word repurposes our pain. None of us would ever wish for pain, and yet it's the, it's the vehicle that God uses to help us to learn to trust Him. William Plumer said, the obstinate depravity of the human heart seems to be incurable. In other words, we will keep going in our sinful ways. Incurable. Except in the school of sorrow. God has saved many a person in their sorrow. Suffering leads oftentimes to salvation. This is why I'm convinced that mercy ministry is so important. Mercy ministry is so important because you're able to meet someone at the place of their suffering. You're able to meet a very practical need. And by doing so, you you create an opportunity to share with them the life-changing, life-transforming hope of the Gospel. And you will get a listening ear from someone who is suffering. That's why Jesus always talked about how hard it was for the rich, like us, to get into the kingdom of heaven because we're not suffering that much. We deal with our suffering by inoculating ourselves with, with whatever escape drug we can find. But when you're down and out, and you're suffering oftentimes because of decisions that you've made. When you go to places, when you go to venues where a lot of suffering people have gathered, oftentimes one of the reasons why they're there is because of bad choices they made in the past. Not all suffering is because of bad choices. But often times it is. God uses suffering in our lives to draw us to Him. We want to be a church that meets people in their suffering and meets practical needs. But I see something else here, guys. I see something else here that is challenging. And I want to go back to Psalm 32 to show it to you. He's saying the same thing that we see here. It is good for me that I was afflicted. That what would happen? That I might learn your commands. That I might learn your statutes. He says, before I was afflicted. Follow the timeline here. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. So before my suffering came, I was wandering away from God. Then my suffering came. Now I keep your word. He's being trained. His pain is being repurposed for God's good. He's saying like Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Look at a lot of the Bible characters. Look at Jonah. Look, just look over and over again. They go through something difficult and God uses that to draw him to themselves. Do you believe that? I, I have a hard time believing it. When you're a parent watching your child go through something difficult 
and you hear someone say, well, maybe God's going to use this trial in order to turn them to Christ, you say amen, but then you say, God, this much? What if God says it's going to get worse before it gets better? I want to hear that. What if, what if though, no, on the other end of that, see, God's got this perspective. He's got this long view. And, and he's bringing this trial. And what you're doing is you're trying to jump around and do everything you can to manage this thing, to relieve and alleviate the symptoms of trial that God has put there in order to bring someone that you love and he loves to himself. Well, you wouldn't do it that way. I need the Word of God to repurpose my pain. To help me to see what people quote in missional community all the time. God works all things for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. Do you really believe that? And then let me just say this as well. Where are we? We're not going there. I, there's something I can't get away from, and this is uncomfortable, but it's right here. Some of the pain that we are experiencing, according to the Scripture, could be attributable to your unwillingness to repent and to change. Oh, that's not popular. It's not popular. Retract, Kenny. Retract. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover it up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's right there. Psalm 107. Somebody else in the group is memorizing that. It's all over the psalm. I've never seen this before. It's all over it. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For, here's the reason why, they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. There it is, guys. I can keep going. He brought them out of darkness. He brought them out of the shadow of death. He burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord. 
Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. It's there again. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from all their distress. Am I crazy? Or is it possible that when I look up the list of anxiety, which when I read about anxiety, you are the most anxious people, we are the most anxiety-ridden people that have ever lived. Kids, 50% of college students are dropping out due to anxiety and depression. I'm not making light of this. Depression is, I know people that struggle with anxiety and depression, and it hurts, and it's hard to help. All I want to say here is what the Word of God says here, that He brings some, some suffering and affliction in our lives, oftentimes to get our attention that we might confess the ways in which We've rebelled against him, and through that, he delivers us from our distress. Am I saying that all anxiety and depression is related to sin? No, I'm not! What I'm saying is what the Bible's saying, and what the Bible tells me is that there are some experiences of anxiety, depression, feeling like weight is on me that I can't bear, groaning all day long, my bones wasting away. And then he confessed it and he was freed. I'm saying to some of you, you need to confess what God is bringing to your mind right now and be set free. Is that too charismatic for you? It's right there, guys. It's right there. Who's with me? The Word of God transforms our troubles and trials. How? It realigns our perspective. It adjusts our attitudes. And it repurposes our pain. Let me close where he closes because I love it. Where'd I go? Psalm 119. Look at the last verse, 17. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Better to me more valuable to me. We're talking about the Word of God and how it transforms our troubles. And he concludes by saying, this is how valuable the Word of God is to me. It's better to me. It's more valuable to me. It does me more good. It guides me. It cheers me. It sustains me. It empowers me. It emboldens me. It's with me in life's most difficult moments. It's with me in life's most trying hours. When my suffering is deep, it remains by my side. When my needs are great, it provides. This is your word. Your your word, your law is better to me. It's more valuable to me than thousands. Why stop at thousands? Thousands was the biggest number used in the Hebrew language. When you were walking around every day and someone drove by with a really nice mule and cart, you might say, that cost him a thousand. That cost him thousands. We don't use thousands. We have bigger words to use. He, he didn't even name what the money monetary piece was. He didn't say shekel or talent or bill. He said pieces. 
thousands of pieces because he didn't want us to get caught up in exactly what is the value. I'll tell you what the value is. He said, I love your word more than thousands. Paraphrase, I love your word more than millions and millions and millions of dollars. Do you love the word like that? What he's trying to say is he wouldn't give up God, Jesus, and his word for all the wealth of this world. What would you give Jesus up for? When I think about Jesus being tempted by Satan, I prayed this this week. I I prayed that he would never tempt me the way he tempted Satan because I'm afraid I'd take him up on it. You create your own fantasy. What is the fantasy that Satan could give to you that would make you say, well, yeah, I'll forsake Jesus for that. There's one. There's a fantasy that if Satan presented it and he did it just right, like, like, could I get away with this and no one will know but me, Satan, and God? Could, could I do this in such a way, Satan, that God will just forgive me for this? Could I, could I have all the things I really, really want without any attachments or consequences? At the end of the day, Do you know what Satan would have to offer you? Do you know what he would have to offer you to give you the best thing he could possibly give you? He'd have to give you heaven. That's what he would have to give you. It's it's the place where you enjoy all that you were meant to enjoy, all that you were created to enjoy without any consequences, tears, affliction, trouble, sin, hassle. He'd have to give you that. He can't give you anything better than you already have. We are those that will buy the truth whatever it costs. We are like the man who walked through the field, stumbling through the field. The kingdom of God is like hidden treasure found in a field, and a man sold all that he had so that he could buy that field. We want Jesus whatever the cost, but we wouldn't sell him for any price. When Jesus is your everything, You can handle everything, anything. And the reason why is because you have His Word. And His Word realigns your perspective. It adjusts your attitude. And it repurposes your pain. Amen, church? Amen.